My name's Nate. I'm a campus missionary leading the South Monday Community Group. I'm going to be teaching for us this morning. And so something for you all to know about me is my wife, Whitney, and I really love to watch TV. One of our favorite things to do. Do it all the time. There's this thing that happens whenever we watch TV shows. You know how when you guys watch something on Netflix and they give you that option where you can like click and skip the theme song, and then after that you can click and skip the like previously on whatever show and it catches you up to what's been happening in the show up to that point. For me, I would never skip one of those in my entire life. I'm a, com I'm a completionist at heart. I hate skipping things even if they really don't matter at all. But Whitney, on the other hand, is all about efficiency. She wants to go as fast as she can, so she would almost never willingly watch a previously on because she already knows what has happened. She's watched the show. So for a lot of shows, we'll just skip the theme, theme songs. We'll skip the previously on, except for when we watch a show called Psych because it has one of my favorite theme songs of all time, so I listen to it every single time. But for a lot of them, we'll just skip ahead. And I know that this story might seem somewhat irrelevant, but as we move forward in our sermon series, I think that the previously on idea will help us to understand the next story that we're going to be studying. And so our sermon series is currently called The Family of God. Part of the reason for this is that we're trying to look towards Christmas, which is the celebration of Jesus' birth with joy and hope. As part of the series, we've been going through the genealogy of Jesus. Vivek taught us about the story of Rahab last week. Now I want to read Matthew 1, 5 through 8, to get us to the person that we're going to be focusing on this week. It should be up there. So it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah. So this morning, we're going to stop and focus on Jehoshaphat, and we're specifically going to look at what it says about him in the book of Chronicles. But before I get into his story, I want to introduce the book of Chronicles and get us up to speed on what happens leading up to Jehoshaphat's story. So I know for a lot of people, the book of Chronicles can be weird and confusing, can kind of seem like a repeat of the book of Kings that comes right before it. I know for me, when I first read through the Bible and I got to Chronicles, I didn't really get why it was there. Like, I was like, people just not agree on which account was better, so they're like, let's just put both. Or did someone just mess up and forget to take Chronicles out? Like, I didn't get what was happening. But I already said I'm a completionist at heart, so I decided to read it anyways. But as I've learned more about the book of Chronicles, I now think that there are very important reasons that Chronicles is in the Bible. An interesting thing is that in our English versions of the Bible, Chronicles comes right after the book of Kings. But in the Hebrew version of the Bible that our English translations come from, the order is a little bit different. Kings is still early on in the Old Testament, but Chronicles is actually the very last book of the Old Testament. It comes after all of the prophets. And I think that there's a reason that the book of Chronicles comes last in the Hebrew order. So as we engage with this text, I want you all to think of the book of Chronicles as a previously on the Bible that's describing what has happened in the Bible up to this point. Chronicles gives us an overview and a commentary on key events 
that have happened in the biblical story up until the period between the Old and the New Testaments. The first nine chapters give us the genealogy of Adam and his descendants until it comes to David. And then it goes through the kings of Israel and of Judah until eventually both nations are in exile. And it, the book ends with the king of Persia declaring that he will allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem. And we know that any good previously on will show you the most important scenes, and it leaves you with a question at the end, some unresolved plot point that we hope will be resolved in future episodes. I think that one of the questions that the book of Chronicles is asking us is, will God be faithful to bring a Davidic king to rule eternally? This question is being asked in the midst of God's people experiencing trial and hardship even as they've returned from exile. They're still waiting on the messianic king to come and to usher in the kingdom of God. This book gives them hope as they wait. It shows them God's faithfulness in so many ways, and it reminds them of God's promise to bring a Davidic king. My hope is that the stories in this book can be an encouragement to us as it encouraged the people of Israel. We know that God has sent the messianic king and his son, Jesus Christ, yet we still experience sorrow and violence and injustice as we wait for Jesus to return and to bring the fullness of God's kingdom on earth. So now, before we get to our main text for the morning, I want to catch us up, up on what has happened in Chronicles until we get to Jehoshaphat. So as I said before, the book covers the genealogy descended from Adam up until the time of David. Then in David's life, we see God make a promise to him in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. And in there, God promises David an heir whose throne and kingdom will be established forever. This is why we ask if God will be faithful to bring a Davidic king to rule eternally as we read this book, because that is what God has promised to David. And then in light of that, in the book, we repeatedly see kings who have potential to fulfill that promise. We start with Solomon, who is David's son. He's the king who rules right after him. Solomon is a man of incredible wisdom, and he expands Israel's kingdom to become larger than it had ever been before. He also builds the temple in Jerusalem so that God can have his presence dwell permanently with his people. Yet ultimately, we see that Solomon is unfaithful to God. He ends up taking hundreds of wives, and he ends up falling into idolatry. So, hopefully, Solomon's son, named Rehoboam, will be better. But instead, we see that Rehoboam rules the people harshly, so much so that the kingdom actually splits into two in a civil war. So instead of his kingdom being established forever, the kingdom splits apart under Rehoboam's rule. The next ruler of Judah is Abijah. There's not much about him, but it does say in 1 Kings 15 that he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. So not a good sign. And then after Abijah, we come to Asa, who is the father of Jehoshaphat. Asa's rule provides some reason for hope. He begins by trusting God in the face of an overwhelming invasion. So God defeats the invading army and he saves the nation. And the spirit of God even comes upon Asa and he enacts religious reforms in Judah that help them to follow God more faithfully. Yet we see that Asa too becomes unfaithful to God. In the face of another war and sickness at the end of his life, Asa trusts in other nations and other people more than he trusts God. So then we come to the story of Jehoshaphat on a low note. The answer to the question, if God will bring a Davidic king to rule eternally, seems to be a resounding no. Even though some kings have shown promise, each has fallen short and each has given into idolatry. 
Then Jehoshaphat's story doesn't really start much better, unfortunately. He allies himself with Ahab, who is one of the most wicked kings of Israel. It seems like Jehoshaphat is going to follow in his father's footsteps in trusting in others more than he trusts God. Yet as he does this, he's rebuked by a prophet named Jehu for allying himself with someone that hates God. In the face of this rebuke, Jehoshaphat seems to repent because we see him appoint judges that help the nation to follow God's laws more faithfully. And this is the context with which we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, which is going to be our main text for the day. So let's walk together through the story in chapter 20 before we consider what we can learn from all this. So starting in chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, says this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So we see Jehoshaphat faces an invasion in the story, just like his father. And it begs the question, will he rely on God or on man to survive? So let's read on and see what happens. Starting verses 3 and then through 12. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and the nations, and your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So we see in the face of this invasion, Jehoshaphat turns to God. He seeks the Lord, he declares a fast for the whole nation, and he says, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat knows that he cannot control the outcome by his own strength or by the strength of others, but that he is fully in God's hands. So then the story continues in verses 13 through 17. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, 
Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. As Jehoshaphat turns to God in this instance, God responds through a prophet, saying to him that you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. The Lord will be with you. Judah is invaded by this army, and God says to them, you do not need to fight. That is an interesting plan for them, to say the least. So let's read on and see how that goes. So then I'm going to read verses 20 through 23, 29 through 30, skipping a few parts for the sake of time. And it says, And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. When he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. When they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So we see Jehoshaphat trusts God's word through the prophet, and he encourages his people to do the same. God had said that Judah would not need to fight, that they had could have confidence that God would be with them, and it was true. The invading army was defeated, God's people were safe, and the surrounding nations had come to fear the Lord because they had seen his power. Jehoshaphat turned to the Lord, and God was faithful to save him and to save Judah. His story would have seemed hopeful for people reading it. Maybe this man, Jehoshaphat, could be the Davidic king. He is teaching God's people to be faithful, and he's defeating Judah's enemies. So then, fresh off of this hopeful moment, let's see what Jehoshaphat does next in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 35 through 37. There it says, After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish, and they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Merashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. So we see that Jehoshaphat does the same thing that he did early on in his life. Even after seeing God's power and defeating an entire army while Judah did nothing, Jehoshaphat decides to once again ally himself with the wicked king. And that's how his story ends in Chronicles. After this, he dies and his son begins to rule. So Jehoshaphat is a bit of a mixed bag, admittedly. He does both good and bad, but I think there is plenty that we can learn from his story. And I think specifically there are three big things that we can learn. And the first thing is that God is faithful to his people. We see that God is faithful to Jehoshaphat and the nation of Judah when he delivers them from the invading armies. Jehoshaphat and the people fast and turn to God in their time of distress, and God responds, saying that he will be with them. They will not even need to fight. God is faithful to do what he says, destroying the invading armies before the army of Judah even sees them. 
So we see that God is faithful. He says that he will save Judah from the invading army, and he does so. He says that he will give David an heir on the throne forever, and he preserves Jehoshaphat, David's descendant. And this isn't a prescription of any time you turn to God, he'll do whatever you want him to do, but more so this is an example from scripture where we can see God says that he will do something, and he is faithful to follow through and do so. So then, the second big thing we can learn from this story is that human leaders cannot save God's people. Like we've already discussed, Jehoshaphat was not faithful for all his life, although he had times of faithfulness. In many ways, he was a good king of God's people, yet he still isn't the Davidic king that was promised. We see this ring true in another small detail of the story. So we see that Jehoshaphat earlier in his life taught the people God's law, and while they may have changed their outward actions, their hearts were not directed towards God. And this is important because there's good reason to associate the promised Davidic king with God's other promises of establishing the kingdom of Israel on earth. One such series of promises is found in Deuteronomy 30, and one especially interesting promise in there says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So God says that he will circumcise the people's hearts. And then in light of that, let's read what it says in Second Chronicles 20, verse 33, in speaking of Jehoshaphat and his rule. It says there, The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. So Jehoshaphat is unable to change the hearts of God's people, even though he teaches them God's law, and it seems that no other human leader would be able to do that either. So it would seem that God's people need a leader that is more than human, that is able to circumcise their hearts, to turn their hearts towards God, which then leads us to our last point. So the third main point is that God's people need a king who will remain faithful and can change their hearts. God's people need a faithful king, because even though God continues to preserve and save his people when they are unfaithful, they still experience devastating consequences of their sin. For example, Jehoshaphat sinned in allying himself with Ahab, and then we see this happen in 2 Chronicles 21, verses 4 through 6. It says, When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword, and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we see Jehoshaphat's son murders his brothers, and he does evil in God's sight, because of his marriage to Ahab's daughter that was brought on by Jehoshaphat. And then this kicks off a series of evil kings in Judah. So Jehoshaphat's sin, valying himself with Ahab, brings huge consequences for the nation of Judah. And then another reason is, just as I talked about earlier, human kings are unable to change the people's hearts. So God's people need a king who will be able to do that, and it seems that no human can. So on that, I want us to return to the question that I said the book of Chronicles was asking, which is, will God be faithful to bring a Davidic king to rule eternally? We know on this side of the cross that the answer to that question is yes, that the Davidic king that God's people were waiting on came as Jesus Christ. 
And each of the main points that I just said directs us towards Jesus. So the first being that God is faithful to send his son to earth. God had promised a Davidic king, and he had promised that someone would come to usher in God's kingdom and bring salvation to all people through faith. And God was faithful to send Jesus. The second way this points to Jesus is that God knew a human leader could not save his people, so he sent his son to become man so we could have a king who is both God and man. Human kings and leaders repeatedly fell short, and they continue to do so today. We see that in Solomon and Jehoshaphat and all the other kings and chronicles who in some way sinned against God. And that's ultimately the story of all humans, that on our own, we are unable to completely faithfully follow God. So in sending Jesus, God gave us a king who is human like us, who has suffered and been tempted just as we have been, but who is also God, who is completely perfect, completely holy, who remains faithful in the face of intense suffering, persecution, and even death. Then the third way that this points to Jesus is that Jesus was perfectly faithful all his life, and new life and new hearts are found in him. Jesus lived a perfect life from his birth through his entire ministry all the way until his death on the cross. Jesus walked faithfully with God. Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected from the dead so we can be forgiven of sins, reconciled to God, and have new life in Christ through faith. And as part of this life, we are given new hearts and filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can faithfully live with God. Jesus is the one that's able to circumcise our hearts, to change our hearts. And we see that Jesus was sent to earth and was both man and God. He lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sakes. And now, through believing in Jesus, and trusting in him before all other things to save, all people are able to experience forgiveness and new life in Jesus and to have a renewed relationship with God. So you may be wondering, what should I do about this or what impact can this have on my life? And I think one major thing is that this should just lead us to worship. God has shown his faithfulness and his love to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has made a way for us to be restored to relationship with him, even though we constantly rebel against him. And as we look towards the Christmas season and the celebration of Christ's coming, we can reflect on God's character and his works, and we can glorify him. But we shouldn't just worship God and then continue our lives the same as they were before. So I also want you to consider this question. Question being, do you trust in Jesus alone to save you and transform your heart? It's important for us to consider this question. Do we trust Jesus or do we trust in other things like ourselves or human leaders or techniques and strategies to improve ourselves? A lot of times that human leader that's funny and smart can seem like someone that can provide us with fulfillment and with meaning or that new technique product that can improve my life can give us hope in the future, hope that I can have a better life than my current day-to-day grind. Or what happens most often for me is I convince myself that if I could only work harder and better, then I can change myself for the better. And good leaders and helpful techniques and products aren't bad things. They can actually be really good things in a lot of ways. But when those become the ultimate things in our lives, the things that we trust in above everything else, we'll always find that they fail us and they fall short. And to illustrate this point, 
I want to read a passage out of a book I really love called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I want to give you a disclaimer that I cut some parts out of the book, so I wasn't up here reading for like 10 minutes straight. So I'll jump around a little bit. And so you guys can understand what's going on. Just know that the person speaking in the book is this kid named Eustace. Throughout the book, uh, he constantly acts like this selfish punk. And there comes a point when he actually ends up being turned into a dragon. And this happens because on the inside, he is selfish and conceited. So he is transformed on the outside to reflect that. But then as a dragon, he begins to have a change of heart. And I'll pick up at a point where Eustace is telling a story about his encounter with a lion named Aslan by a pool of water. So the book says, The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just they, as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit under, on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it too. So then Eustace peels his skin off twice more, before he ultimately allows Aslan to come and to peel the skin off for him. Then the book picks up saying, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy-O, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, and darker, and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. <clears throat> I'd turned into a boy again. So I wanted to read that because I think it's a really sweet metaphor of how just as Eustace was unable to cure himself, how no amount of peeling his skin off over and over could turn him back into a boy so too, we're not able to save ourselves or to change our own hearts. Jesus alone is the one that is able to save us. Jesus alone is the one that can change our hearts. So Jesus alone is the one that is deserving of our trust. So I want to pray for us real quick before we transition onto our next thing. God, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that the Old Testament points us to your son, that it shows us 
who you are. It shows us your character. And I want to thank you for sending your son so that we are able to be restored to you, so that we can have new life and have new hearts and live in relationship with you, Lord. And I pray that you help us, that you guide us and convict us, that we can trust in Jesus alone as the one who saves us, as the one who transforms our hearts. I ask that in times when we start to stray from you and we start to trust in other things, that you can gently direct us back to you and back to trusting in you, Lord. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.